Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Well, welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It's good to be with you again. Please like, share, review, subscribe, and otherwise enjoy Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you go to get your podcasts. You can also go to johnwarrenmedia.com for more information about us. Feel free to contact me there using our contact form or send an email to john at johnwarrenmedia.com. Well, it is good to be with you again. Thank you for your support of the podcast and our work uh, in general. If you'd like to know more about us, do go to the website. Uh, Today, I'm going to do something uh, a a little different. Uh, You've uh, recently uh, talked about the economy and my story and all the rest. And and now today, I want to talk about the bad news. I want to talk about cosmic bad news that every human needs to come to grips with. Now, I I did a lesson at my church a few weeks ago, and uh, several people I, I care about uh, very much, uh, I'm very fond of in our church, were not able to be there, and they just happened to be faithful podcast listeners. Uh, so, I, I want to just talk, even though this will be a repeat for those who were in that room, uh, for others around the country and around the world, it certainly won't be. And it's an important topic. I want to talk about the big picture bad news that we must all come to grips with. And and I, I want to start with this. I'm, we're not going to have a heady theological discussion, but we do want to kind of get it right we don't kind of get it right. We want to really get it right. I want to, I want to say this. The world is designed for God's glory. That's the purpose of the world. It's the reason he created it. It doesn't make God arrogant. And in fact, Paul Washer talks about this. He says there are two pillars that are, that are kind of the most important ones. They're the basis for the entire gospel. That is, who is God and who is man? The very character, the very essence of God and, and the essence of man. Those two things, on, on those two things, those two pillars, the, the entire gospel sits. And, and, and the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is, is absolutely critical to the understanding of all theology and all of life. So we start with the world is created for God's glory. Now, by way of introduction, I've got a couple of analogies that I'd like to share with you, and, and they're all imperfect, but I think they're helpful. I like these little analogies. I use them in class. It's almost maybe a dad thing to do that. I'd love to know what you think of them. The, the first one, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm borrowing all these from life experiences, and this first one is, is uh, from, from a, a person, a theologian. He said that the stars demonstrate God's glory. And I thought, well, yes, they spectacularly, they do. And I've always wanted to own a telescope and have not. My wife and I have been 
one time to one of those huge science center telescopes at where you, you kind of sit in a recliner and you get to see the stars from this incredibly powerful telescope. And I thought that was the coolest thing. I'd love to own one of those and just have never bought one. I'm fascinated by the planets, by the universe, by its expansion, by by space exploration and all those things. I think that's 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 really cool. So I agree with this theologian that they the stars demonstrate God's glory. But you know what? That's not the point of of the analogy. He says, and and this this is really simple and profound. He says it's it's not as if right before the sun comes up, God scoops away the stars with this cosmic shovel and then waits until after sunset for a few minutes and then sprinkles them back into the sky. And that that sounds even silly to say out loud, doesn't it? Because we know that not to be true. But if you think about it, the reason you see the stars at night and only at night is the darkness of the absence of light in the sky. And that's really his point. And my point in sharing this with you in this bad news introduction, this this talk about who is man is I think it's important to think of it that way. The darkness of our sin illuminates, shows us the juxtaposition between who we are, who man is and who God is, is similar to the darkness in the sky, revealing the beauty of God's glory in the stars. There's another one that's also woefully inadequate that I want to talk about, another analogy called the trolley dilemma. You've probably heard of it. If you've studied ethics, you've certainly heard of it. You've probably heard of it if you've studied psychology, if you've had a class in either of those disciplines or a related discipline, you've probably heard of it and you probably rolled your eyes when the teacher or professor said something like this. And, the, and there, there are different iterations of this, but the, the most common, the most basic one goes something like this. You're, you're observing a trolley headed down a track and down below, down a hill, are four unsuspecting people standing on the track. Their death is certain and they are oblivious to the trolley. But there's good news in the bad news story. The good news is you have a switch that you can pull. If you pull that switch, the trolley gets diverted to a different track. However, there's more bad news. There's an unsuspecting man on that track. So if you do nothing, four people die. And if you pull the lever, one unsuspecting person who otherwise wouldn't have died, dies. And so I talk about this in the context of Oh, among other things, greater good ethical theories. Do you are we responsible for always accomplishing the greater good? Would it make sense to pull the lever? But that's not the point of my mentioning it today, because one of the things I think about when I explain this to students, and it is woefully imperfect, you can critique it. And, and there are other nuanced versions of iterations of, of the trolley dilemma you may have heard. But. I think the important thing for our purpose today is to think about this. I give the students two options. One is A is do nothing and four people die. B pull the lever and the trolley's diverted to the other track and one person dies sparing the lives of four people. Or if you do the math, if you want to think in these terms, net three people. But I always think when I say this and, and it just points to one of the, perhaps one of the weaknesses in the dilemma 
well, why don't you just choose option C, which is quickly and loudly shout, hoping, I don't know how far away they are, but hoping to get the attention of the four oblivious people who are on the track and have their backs to the trolley. Because if you can get them to step off of the track, their lives are saved. And frankly, you know, what would you say if you just had a few seconds? You know, you'd shout something like, hey, there's a trolley coming or hey, get off the track or or just most anything to get them to move, get their attention and get them to see the trolley and move. And I think about that in terms of the bad news of who man is and and, and being born in sin and so on. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But I, I think it's incumbent on us, isn't it? To warn a world that frankly is dead in trespasses and sins, according to scripture, but to warn a world that, that death is imminent and, and death in scripture means several things. And we're going to talk about that as well. The, the third thing that I wanted to talk about, the third analogy is uh, CPR certification, believe it or not. Uh, the school I teach at circle Christian school had um, has uh, some remote, rather remote classrooms that are kind of not like down the same hallways as some of the other classrooms. And I, my classes were taught in, uh, one of those classrooms a few years ago and someone came to me in the administration and said, Hey, we, we kind of think maybe you'd want to get certified in CPR and first aid. And so I checked into it and found from a resource they had and found that it was, it was possible for me to do this. Although it was quite a commitment and I, I'm married to a nurse. My wife, Connie is a nurse. And I thought, you know, I kind of know a little bit about this stuff, but, but, but am I really comfortable with it? no, so maybe this makes sense. And I, and I did it and I found the training very helpful. If you've never done it, I, I would recommend it. Um, I, I think the chance of you or me actually needing to employ those skills are small, uh, hopefully, but you know, we're designed, it's designed to get us equipped so that we can bridge the gap between a terrible event that a person experiences and, you know, their heart stopping and, and, uh, and their, and their breathing stopping and professional help. So we're just, we're just bridging a gap. And, and so the training teaches how to, how to, how to do this, how to assess the patient, the subject, how to determine whether or not they're breathing, whether or not their heart's beating, uh, teaches the technique for CPR, um, on, on different people in different situations who are different sizes and different ages. And, and I, I thought it was just terrific, terrific training. And, and yet one of the things that sticks out most to me is you're going to think this is peculiar probably, but it, it was one lesson. I mean, the, the one thing that stands out to me is the most valuable thing I learned is this one lesson on, on, on why it goes wrong sometimes. And, and, and they didn't call it that they had a more professional way of, of saying it, but, and it's been a few years, but it reminded me as I was preparing for this lesson in the bad news, I, I flashed back to this training and this one session, it was, it was really on, 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 on being so stressed that people sometimes are so stressed that they freeze and they don't do anything or they don't employ the techniques they've learned. And I know the nurses and doctors out there would say, yeah, but you just have to train and train and train and you do, but you have to overcome a mental thing. And the trainer, I think, did a great job of explaining this. He said something like this. 
look, if the person doesn't have a heartbeat and you know, no pulse and, and they're, and they're not breathing, then they're as good as dead. You're their only hope if you're the only person around and you're, especially if you're only the per- only person who knows how to do this. And, and so jump in and use your training and do it. You're not going to hurt them. I mean, I guess you could hurt them, but, but don't be afraid. Don't let fear paralyze you and, and jump in because without you, they're dead. You're their only hope. And I, I thought, you know, I know that doesn't transfer to theology, but if we just thought, hey, talking about our faith is necessary, the world is dying. I mean, you know, the trolley dilemma is inadequate and the CPR training thing is inadequate. The stars don't quite capture, you know, the glory of God and sin, but you get it and understand why I would mention it. And, and I think they all point to the fact that we, we, we are the world, mankind is dead in our trespasses and sins. And if we were mindful of that, wouldn't we be more likely to do something? Just do it, just jump in. And, and, and that, you know, we're going to talk in a minute about how, how to do that. And uh, we're going to talk about perhaps, you know, gentleness and respect and relationship and all those things. I mean, this isn't, this isn't bullhorn on the street corner activity in the world I live in. So, all right, that's the introduction. Now, what is actually the bad news? And, and I'm, I'm going to just summarize it this way. God is holy and we're not. I'm going to read to you from Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, if you're hearing that for the first time and you get into the whole King Uzziah and the seraphim and all that, you can kind of miss the point of this. But the, the point is, just said really simply, God is holy. And the bad news that I want to talk about today is that we're not. Our sin and God's holiness contrast sharply when we view God and man correctly. And we'll, we'll see the, this juxtaposition today. So what does holy mean or what is holiness as an attribute of God? It means set apart, unmatched, special. It's, it's, it's contained in his transcendence, his being apart from us. There's also an element of it that, that includes righteousness. And my seminary friends will say, oh my goodness, no, don't, don't compare God's holiness and righteousness. I realize holiness literally means set apart, but it is his righteousness, his moral rightness that sets him apart. So from a deeds, from a doing standpoint, holiness and righteousness 
are very similar. And I hope that helps you. So we can throw in morally perfect and, and spotless. So the words aren't identical, though. Righteousness is an attribute that sets God apart. So why does this vision of God's holiness worry Isaiah? Well, after seeing God's holiness, he realizes how unholy he is. Now, I want to talk about something just for a minute that I, I think is, is, is very important and it was instrumental in, it was a part of my struggle. Resolving this is a big part of my journey. And I, I used to think that my story was abstract and weird and, you know, it was different. It was peculiar. And I find the more people I talk to about it, the more, more I realize I share some of these experiences where, where we, we want to, you know, we might've had a childhood conversion experience, but we want to, we want to experience, we, we, we want to understand theology and, 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 and we want, we want to, we want to be anchored in truth. So, so one of the things I struggled with is how do we reconcile? And you might've thought about this. I think lots of people who reject God think about this a lot. How do, how do we reconcile God's holiness, this moral rightness, his purity, his being apart from us, set apart and grace? How, how can God be both holy and forgiving of man? If I'm right and I am right, and you can go observe this at your supermarket if you'd like, or any place where lots of people hang out, especially where there are toddlers. Am I, if I'm right, that man is sinful, born sinful, not, not inherently good, but inherently evil. And that doesn't mean totally evil. It doesn't mean that humans apart from God aren't capable of some good things, but man is born sinful. So, so how can God be holy and forgiving a man in a, in a sense. Now I'm skipping to the conclusion here and I, I don't want to lose you because I've got some interesting things I believe to, to talk about, but, but think about this for a second. How can God be just and forgive us? This is only resolved in the person of Jesus Christ. There's a section in Isaiah and just stay with me for a moment. That this is only resolved, God, that God, God's righteousness and holiness not being compromised, but him being gracious and forgiving to us is only possible in the person of Christ. There's a section in Isaiah 53, actually verses 3 through 12 are very helpful. If you've never read Isaiah, I'd encourage you just just flip over there and, and read Isaiah 53 someday. You might want to read the whole book. You might enjoy it. it it's got incredibly valuable information like this section. I'm only going to read instead of three through 12 to save time. I'm going to read verses four through six. And some of you probably memorized this. You've heard this various places read at various times, usually, usually around Easter, probably for some of us, surely he, he's talking about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
this atonement, this reconciliation, our redemption, this act of propitiation is only possible by the sinless sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And if you read this whole section, you'll see that it talks about who God is, who Jesus Christ is, and his finished work on the cross, and who man is beautifully. And I think that's important truth for us to grasp. Now, to really understand the bad news. Now, you're probably getting the idea now that inherent in the bad news is also some good news, and we're going to talk about that too. So, where the people of Israel, referenced in Isaiah in that first section, are they worse than us, or are they representative? Are they like us today? Well, well, of course they're like us today. In fact, even in the United States of America, and for those of you who are in other countries, even in India and Australia, you, you know enough about American culture to know about our drift, and and you you know you know really where where we are as a country, and and so we don't read Bible stories and gasp anymore. We look we listen to the news and gasp. We look at our own culture. So the answer to the question, is Israel worse than us? No, they're representative of us. They're, they're similar to us. A familiar passage that I just want to reference briefly is Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. What it basically says is all of mankind are sinners. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We're not just happy little sinners were dead as it were now there's another section that i talk about from time to time in romans 3 if you were with me through the book of romans you know that paul spends two and a half chapters on our sin at the beginning of this letter this is actually a pattern in scripture i think it's interesting the uh, in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually does this where, where he, he, he actually starts with the bad news. And, and Paul, Paul does this, and, and there are other examples of that in Scripture. It's, it, it's almost like if, if you can see that man, who man is, when we pivot to who God is and what grace is, it's so much more vivid. Conversely, I think, I think both are true, and, and we'll talk about that in a moment but, uh, in detail, but I, but I think... Conversely, when we see God's glory we, 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 and we look at man, then we realize how, how, how sinful man is. So Romans 3, 10 through 18 is that section that starts with none is righteous, no, not one. Uh, no one understands. No one seeks up for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery. 
and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, that unfortunately in the American church, this bad news doesn't get talked about very much. And and, and, it, and it's really important. It's in scripture. This, this pastors, I'm afraid that sometimes you think, wow, this is too negative. If I'm negative, what, you know what? What I would say is preach the entire word of God and, and let God take care. In, in fact, if it really troubles you, and, and in fact, I think a, a good a good way of handling it, and, and a lot of pastors I know, like Charlie Parrish, who's on, on here with me from time to time, he does this. At the end of this discussion about how bad it is, leave your listeners, your congregation, with the great hope that we have in the gospel. The gospel should permeate every sermon anyway, but don't be afraid of talking about sin. So what, what we have here are exacerbated, aggravated, in legal terms, charges. They're, they're heinous charges, 14 of them. Again and again and again, we're all doomed and we're all sinners. So let, let's just hold that thought. So, so we, now we know we have a problem, but, but, but why does this matter? Well, the problem is worse than we like to think. Paul has already explained in Romans 1 and 2 that we can't trust our senses or our understanding. He says we're blind. We're hard-hearted. The words he uses are futile, dishonoring, debased, having a debased mind, suppressing the truth, and he goes on. So, there's another verse that you probably know. We might as well talk about this one for a moment. I think it's important. It's Romans 3.23. And it's where Paul pivots, and he pivots beautifully to the good news. And he says in verse 23 of Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, when he says for all have sinned, he's clearly referencing the previous phrase. And there he says, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So my mind just races through that because I've memorized it when I was a kid. I've heard it a thousand times and, it, and I've used it to prove, well, everybody's a sinner, like Paul has already said. Well, Paul doesn't waste words or sentences. And so he must be saying something more than that. And he's, he's about to pivot and he says in verse 24, and are justified by his grace. And he goes on. So, so he's going to talk about justification by faith, but, but, he's, but, he's, but he's back to that point. He's, I had these 14 counts of sin that we, that we just read, and, and, then, and then he says, and he, he talks about a couple of other things, and then he comes back to that, seemingly, and says, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, my mind immediately says, when he says, for there is no distinction, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles, and I think he is. He's saying neither of you are are excluded from this there's no distinction all have sinned but he's already covered that and at the beginning of the chapter if you go back and read it he's already addressed some some rhetorical questions it's not really rhetorical there he's he's kind of he's kind of uh, uh, anticipating objections anticipating their questions and answering them and and so he's he's kind of addressed the 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 Jewish Gentile thing and he goes on to do that again and again throughout this letter but but I think here's here's what I think he's I think he's doing. He's saying there's no distinction, and and what that what that really means is there's no distinction. Period. 
No distinction means no distinction. Of course, it applies to Jews and Gentiles, but it applies to rich and poor and young and old and liberal and conservative and on and on we could go. There's no distinction. There's no preferring of persons. There's no, unlike the entire rest of our society, there's no pecking order here. There's no pyramid of power. There's no executive office. There's no glass ceiling. There's no discrimination. There, uh, there's no bigotry. There, God, is, God evaluates us all perfectly, and, and, and we're all doomed. For all have sinned. And, and so that's that's great. I, I, you know, we can all agree on that, I think. I, I bet I get very little disagreement from anyone in comments or otherwise on, on that on that fact. That's a biblical truth most of us grew up with. Yeah, we're all sinners. But we, I always forget, and maybe it's just me, but I forget the, the, the rest of the sentence and fall short of the glory of God. You remember I said at the beginning that the world was made for God's glory and that doesn't make God arrogant. Isn't that interesting? A commentator said the Bible talks about the glory of God leading Israel in Exodus 16, the, 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 the temple of Solomon in 1 Kings 8, the Mount of Olives in Ezekiel 11, among other places. But now the glory of God is Jesus Christ. When Paul says, and I'm quoting from this commentator, when Paul says that we have come short of the glory of God, he means that we do not measure up to the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. When the Lord Jesus was made a curse for us, he redeemed us from the curse of the law. The standard of God's holiness today is the person of Jesus Christ, and we don't measure up to his perfect righteousness. This is the bad news. So if you've sinned, you're now lacking, you're now insufficient with respect to the glory of God. You can look at Isaiah 43, 7 later, but that and other scripture confirms that, that, that the design of the world is for God's glory. So when we sin, we're sinning against God and his glory. Sin is substituting the glory of God with something else. Here's one, quoting John Piper now, sin is mainly about God. We like to even make our sin about us. It's all about him. So, so that's the bad news, but, but, it, but it gets worse. And, and you've, you've got another verse memorized, probably Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, or something like that. Our sentence is death. The Bible elsewhere calls this experience of God's wrath, the second death or hell. And it explains that this, etern this is eternal punishment. And if you struggle with that, and I know some people do, look at Revelation 2 and 20 and 21. But look at 2 verse 11 in particular. Chapter 20 verse 6. Chapter 20 verse 14. Chapter 21 verse 8. And I think you'll be convinced that there is a literal hell. So what, what example do we see in our culture of people either ignoring or denying this bad news? You know, and, and why do you think they do this? Why is there denial? Why do pastors not want to preach on this? And why do we not like thinking about it? 
Well, you know, among other things, I, I think it's part of our best efforts to to kind of resolve our own mental health needs. I mean, I mean, I I, I think our self sufficiency just makes us. I, denial is powerful, and I I think we don't like addressing it. No one talks about dead people. This is, this is a crude way to say it, but nobody talks about dead people as if they could be in hell. It almost seems not to be a threat, doesn't it? We often reference sin as mistakes, and our self-reliance makes us hesitant to admit when we do wrong. I think we all struggle with this. We don't think about our own mortality, much less the fact that every soul is immortal. You know, we, we, we really don't like illness and adversity. I've told you before about my cancer experience almost 20 years ago. My goodness, that chemo room was a beautiful place. It was the scariest place I've ever been to the first time I went. But by the second time, it was beautiful. Everybody was real. Everyone in that room sitting in those recliners. If you've ever been, I'm sorry you had to. If you've ever been to visit a friend or had to have chemo yourself, I understand how terrible it is and how poisonous it is. But there's a beauty to it because everybody is real. God uses adversity, whether we like it or not. He uses the adversity in our lives. He uses illness and adversity. Do I want any more of that? Nope. I certainly don't. But was it a powerful teacher? Yes. It certainly was. We don't like thinking about these things. And it forced me, cancer forced me to think about the fact that I'm not going to live forever. And it was helpful to me in reordering my life. My heart goes out to you. I want to pray for you. I, I know some people right now who are going through treatment. Some aren't doing so well. I pray for them, for healing, for courage, for strength, for stamina, for perspective, for pain relief, all of that. So I don't diminish those things, but, but I know that God uses them. It's healthy for us to think about our own mortality. It's healthy for us, I think, to think about the bad news. Although mankind struggles with guilt and inadequacy, and we certainly do, don't we? Our pride causes us to hold on to self-sufficiency. This is true from the Garden of Eden through today and through the entire rest of the future of the earth. So here's the question. Does, God, does our sin allow us to see God's glory more clearly? Or does God's holiness allow us to see our sin more clearly. Let me repeat that. Does our sin allow us to see God's glory more clearly or does God's holiness allow us to see our sin more clearly? You know what the answer is? Yes. You know, there's a, there's a spectrum I like to talk about. And, and, and you know, as you think about people and, and sharing the bad news of, of sin with, with people who maybe don't believe who, or lack faith in God, Everybody can relate to this. At one end of the spectrum, and this is extreme, but you have, you have the, the most arrogant person on earth. So you have arrogance at one end. At the other end, you have guilt. The person with arrogance says, with respect to self-reliance, I've got this. The person who's burdened, overwhelmed with guilt at the other end of the spectrum says, how could God forgive me? 
Paul addresses this again in Romans 1 and 2. But think about that spectrum. Everybody's on it. One of the questions R.C. Sproul used to ask people, and we're going to touch on this in our closing in a few minutes. He used to ask people, well, so you don't believe in God. What, what, what do you do with your guilt? Guilt is crippling. Arrogance is crippling. Why do we hold on to self-reliance? If you think about it, the guilty person, the person who can't get out of their own way with respect to guilt, and I've been there. How could God forgive me? That's a, still a form of self-reliance, isn't it? it? It's failing to acknowledge the gospel. And arrogance is clearly a form of self-reliance. I don't think we have a problem picturing that, agreeing with that. So anyway, in terms of application, what do we, what do, we do with all this? You know, we've read some scripture. We, we know just how sinful. We know man is dead in trespasses and sins. We know the implications of that are death. We talked about mortality and, and the immortal soul. But what, what do we do with this? You know, we talked about the biblical pattern of discussing law before grace or our sinful condition before justification by faith. Jesus did this, by the way, in the Sermon on the Mount. If you go back and look at Matthew 5, Paul did it, as I mentioned in, in Romans, but Jesus also did it. I, I think I mentioned that earlier. But let, let's walk through some application questions quickly together. The first one is, how can we communicate and convince people who are by nature self-sufficient of the bad news? Now, I, I, I think an excellent way is by talking about the fact that we are sinners. One of the things that the professing atheist or the person who, who just does not, they might not be an atheist, but they just don't want to buy into Christianity. One of the things they'll say is, is that Christians consider themselves better than others. And, and, you know, there are some Christians who act like that. The, the, you know what I'm talking about, the super spiritual, hands folded. It can be off-putting. It can look like, and, and I, I, I'm, I'm all about worship uh, uh, and, 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 and good behavior, worshipful behavior, lifestyle is important, but we can come off like we really do think we're better than everybody else. Jesus modeled something totally different. If you look at Mark 2, 15 through 17, he ate with tax collectors and sinners. Or if you look at 1 Timothy 1, 15, Paul calls himself I don't remember what he calls himself there. I think it's the chief of sinners. He talks about the fact that he's a sinner. So I think that's one of the things we can do. We can talk about the fact that we are sinners. We can tell our own story, our own testimony. There are lots of examples of this. I mean, one, and I don't like this expression, but, but it applies here. Just be present. Show up and, and get to know people. Invest in people emotionally. Have emotional capital with people so they can see who you are. They'll know you're a center pretty quickly. All right, next question is, should our approach change depending on the age and life experiences of the person we're speaking with? Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, one size fits all discussion of the bad news would be kind of silly. What, what if you're with that most arrogant person that I just mentioned and and then the next afternoon you're with you're with that person who's burdened with guilt wouldn't you speak to them differently i think you would i think we're different at different ages uh, men and women are different i'll get in trouble for saying that one but but we process differently i i know in my students i i certain students think certain ways 
They have certain biases. They have certain interests. You know, relatability is, is, is not something we should shun. We should embrace it. I, I know with young men in their 20s and 30s, and, and sometimes they never get past this, there, there's, there's a certain amount of being full of themselves. It's possible with ladies too, but I, I see it more with guys, if I'm honest. Life experiences tend to ameliorate this over time, but sometimes even professional success can embolden a sense of self-sufficiency in people. You've seen this. Some of the wealthiest people can be some of the most arrogant. That's not always true. Well, let's move on to the next question. So, so I think we should change our approach depending on who we're dealing with. I, and I don't think you need to have five approaches. I think you need to trust God, be ready to discuss this bad news as part of telling people about our Lord. But, 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 I, but I, don't think, I don't think you have to go, oh, is this an A, a B, or a C? I, 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 think, I think you can just be sensitive about the fact that, that people are coming from different places and try to be relatable. Try to approach them appropriately. If the person is, is full of guilt, you really don't need to address their arrogance, probably, at first. Next question, do we see God's amazing grace more clearly as we understand the implications of the fall? Well, yes. Yeah, that little star illustration wasn't great, but it's true. And I'll tell you the one thing, the one thing that I thought about when I... When I shared my testimony at our church not long ago. One thing I thought about is it is the love of so many people who cared about me that overwhelmed me. It is actually God's love for me through people that made me stop in my tracks. It's not somebody pounding me over the head, although I needed that from time to time. No, it it was love. It was people loving me. God's amazing grace, we can see even through this bad news. Impossible to separate the two. So what are some tools that we can use? Actual tools, practical tools to discuss the bad news with others. You know, you know what I say there? I, I, and it's just, you don't have to do this. There, there are a number of ways you can read scripture to people and on all, all kinds of things. But getting people to think sometimes and, and building relationship are very important. And, and I, I would say learn the art. Some of you are great conversationalists. Some who I know, you are brilliant conversationalists. So you already understand this. You might even do this naturally. Many of you might. I might, I might be at the wrong end of the spectrum on this. But I had to learn that a way to a way to relate to people on any topic, but especially this one, is to ask open ended questions. R.C. Sproul's question that I mentioned earlier, what do you do with your guilt? Another one that's not so open ended worded this way. You can you could change it. Have you ever thought about the gap between us and a holy God or have you ever found yourself to be your own worst enemy in a sense or. Have you ever been frustrated with setting a goal or deciding to do better only to be frustrated with failure? I mean, and, and, and you could, you could change that to tell me about a time when for any of those to make it more open-ended so you don't get a yes or no and kind of terminate the conversation. But there's a way to look at people like I expect you to say more than just yes or no. It's funny though, as I think about this, everybody has set a goal 
and deciding to do better and, and then been frustrated later. I've mentioned, and I, I don't know why I felt comfortable talking about this, but dieting. And, and I told you that I have some friends who uh, owned a bunch of uh, Planet Fitness franchises and they, uh, they talk about the fact that everybody signs up and then, and then they don't show up so much. You know, they sign up in January and make a New Year's resolution. And I think everybody can relate to that. And they're, they're, you know, us, us being inadequate, being sinners is, is incredibly relatable. I, I think most people know there's a gap between us and a holy God. It's how we, it, I mean, they don't always define God well and don't define us well necessarily, but they know there's a gap. It's, it's how they bridge the gap that, you know, th- th- where they go wrong. And that, that's usually, well, I can be good enough or it doesn't matter or something in between. It ends up being some answer equivalent to I, I'm relying on myself. And usually people feel woefully inadequate and that opens the door for a, a, just a quick conversation, maybe an introductory conversation to what the grace of God actually is. So here's, here's the final question. What are, what are some things that I did and still do that remind me of the bad news about me and my need to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to myself daily? Well, there are a lot of things I do that remind me of the bad news. My, my sins, my sin bothers me more than ever. This is an internal argument that we all seem to have. It's really about sufficiency, isn't it? And whether or not our sufficiency is in ourselves or in Christ alone. Having this battle doesn't make you lost, doesn't make you unsaved. It's, it's, it's the state of things on this earth. It's, it's the implications of the fall. But there are still some things we do that remind us of the bad news. And, and you don't want to wallow in this when you talk to people about our Lord, but it might be helpful to them to know you struggle still, especially if they're one of those people who says, you know, Christians think they're perfect and super spiritual and I just don't fit in. So that's it. That's the application. And I think, you know, it, it would probably be prudent if we ended this discussion, if I can find it here. Uh, we can end this discussion on a positive note. Let's, I mean, yes, there is bad news. And yes, we must come to grips with it. But we must come to the foot of the cross to see God's love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We aren't left with despair over the bad news. Praise God. So let's close with this. I'm going to read Colossians 2. 13 through 15, and I don't rank scripture, but this is among the most beautiful. Paul's writing here, and he says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, notice we've read Ephesians where he said the same thing. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all underline that word, our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Love this language. This he set aside. He put it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross 
This justification is by faith. You can, we can today, you, you can put your trust in Jesus Christ. This bad news does not leave you in a helpless state. If you'd like to know more about the hope that lies within us, please send along a comment. Go to johnwarrenmedia.com and use our contact form or send an email directly to me at john at johnwarrenmedia.com. I'm thankful for this audience. I hope this has been helpful. I look forward to being with you again soon. Thank you for listening to the, the bad news. There's good news in the bad news, though. Praise God, isn't there? Until next time. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren. Thank you.